0: You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. John chapter 6, verses 16 to
1: 24. Jesus walks on water. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea Got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going.
0: Thanks, Lily. Lost the page, (laughs) I'll take it. Well, good morning again. Thanks so much for joining us. Good to have you here, whether you call Cedar Hill home or you're just visiting. Uh, As Lily said, we're a church all about knowing Jesus and making Jesus known, and uh, we do that often. The main meal of our Sunday services is is opening up the Bible, because when we read the Bible, we are hearing God speak to us, and so that's what we're going to do now, and diving in to to this story uh, that Lily just read out for us. Uh, But if you've just joined us, you've joined us five episodes in to a seven-episode series uh, looking at the seven signs of Jesus. Uh, Hopefully our memories who have been here for for prior weeks are are still sharp. We've looked at Jesus turning water into wine. Uh, Jesus then uh, healed an official's son from some 30 kilometres away at one o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, Jesus then healed a man who was paralysed for some 38 years. Last week, we saw that he turned a little, play, little boy's play lunch uh, into feeding some 20,000 people. Uh, and today, we, we come to the famous story, very well-known story of Jesus walking on water. This, if we will, is a bit of a part B or a part two of last week, as we find the text that comes just after the text we looked at last week in John chapter 6. And so we've looked at some of these these. Just outrageous things that marked Jesus' life and time with us here on earth. But we haven't yet asked ourselves a question that might be lingering in the back of some of our minds about these things that we're looking at, about this whole series, and about the book of the Bible, John, that we're reading. And that is, can we actually believe these things really happened? These things that we call miracles, did these actually happen in real time, in real space, in real history? Much of our world today would think that Jesus walking in water. Surely it's, it's just a story, isn't it? It's like it's like how we recount our athletic achievements in high school. Like they just kind of they, they get glow, more, more and more impressive the the longer we get or more distant we get from it having actually happened. This is just something that's like a delusion that's been attached to the legacy of Jesus, and now it's blown up into this thing we call a miracle. Uh, you might remember uh, in the Star Wars trilogy two trilogy. I don't know how many Star Wars there are now, but in those earlier movies of Star Wars, we, we meet the Death Star, uh, which for those unfamiliar is, is what it sounds like, a planet that is a weapon. This, this massive, the bad guys have it, planet that is a weapon designed to bring destruction. And when we first see the Death Star, we're meant to be struck with fear, because surely the Empire is now going to win. The bad guys have it. It is inevitable. You cannot beat this thing. But it turns out in the story, that some of the good guys get the blueprints for the Death Star and they discover that there is one weakness in the way that the Death Star was designed and built. There's a little hole in the side of the Death Star and the idea is if you can just shoot, even just one bullet through the hole in the Death Star, you can hit the core of the Death Star and the whole thing blows up. Now you would think for the amount of money they spent on the Death Star, they could have at least done one final building inspection and just kind of put a a painting over the hole, do something to make the Death Star impenetrable, but no. It's got this one tiny weakness and because of that one tiny weakness, the whole thing blows up. Well, in a similar way, our modern world thinks that there's a hole in Christianity when it comes to the miraculous. And in fact, there is, because if it can be proven that the miraculous could not possibly happen, then the whole thing blows up. The Apostle Paul, the most influential individual Christian, he also agreed with that. He said, if Christ is not being raised from the dead, then everybody, the world, should feel sorry for us Christians. You should pity us Christians because we're being played the fool because it's all meaningless. The whole thing blows up. And we could perhaps say the same thing about all the episodes in our series because all the episodes I've been trying to reiterate again and again are signs pointing to who Jesus is. But if the signs didn't happen there's no point to who Jesus is. Jesus' credibility here is on the line. The credibility of the Bible is on the line. The credibility of the whole message of Christianity is on the line about whether these things actually happened. And our modern world has been educated out of believing in this kind of stuff. It's in the realm of Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny. Sorry if that gave it away for anybody. But as we approach this, this story of, of Jesus walking on water, what I want to upfront suggests is how we modern people conceive of the world right now might be the thing that has the hole in it. C.S. Lewis is a great thinker, author of the Narnia series. He's got a book reflecting on miracles and he uses an illustration. He says, imagine an Englishman put $100 in his bedside table on Monday and then on Tuesday he put another $100 in his bedside table. On Wednesday, if we do the math, the, the laws of nature, the laws of, of mathematics, all my further maths friends out here, how much would we expect to find in the bedside table on Wednesday? $200. We would expect to find $200. And so, what if he only finds $2? Something has been broken. Either the laws of nature, the laws of mathematics have been broken, or the laws of England have been broken. See, so perhaps. In the situation, we haven't accounted for the fact that the window next to the bedside table was slightly ajar and a thief could reach their hand in to the bedside table and take the money. This this new information, previously unaccounted for, completely changes the situation. And so if you're working out whether miracles could happen, and in your mind you are imagining a world where God didn't create it, God isn't sustaining it, God doesn't, in fact, exist at all, that the only things that can happen are things that uh, are are in the closed loop system already, then of course miracles can't happen because there's nothing outside of it to enter in and tweak those things. But just like the story, Jesus uh, doing miraculous doesn't work against the laws of nature. It rather just reveals to us what the situation really is. It shows us what kind of world we're actually living in. And we are living in a world where the omnipotent God exists and continues to sustain our world, sustain the laws of physics, or even bend them, if need be, to say something, to reveal something about himself. And so these miracles, these signs, they show us the power that God has over his creation, that he can do with it what he wills. It shows us, too, the the kind of world that we're living in, that isn't this, this closed system. And it means that every one of these signs becomes exactly what we've been trying to say over these last four or five weeks, that they are meaningful moments. And today we're going to see that this walking on water uh, sign is not merely a moment, but points to the fact that God doesn't just manipulate moments to say something about himself, but even all of human history he has crafted to reveal himself to the world. And So today we're going to look at this story that, that harkens back to history. We're in John's gospel and John started by hinting that he might be doing this throughout the rest of the story. In John chapter 1, verse 17, he he took us back to one of the most influential leaders in Israel's history. He said, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so just like last week, there were connections to Moses in the feeding of the 5,000 or the 20,000 as it may be. The, The bread, John wants to highlight it even further this week. This contrast between Moses and Jesus, between what happened back then in the book of Exodus and what's happening today in the life of Jesus. So as we've, has been our habit this series, we're going to walk through the text. Uh, we're going to find those connections along the way and then we're going to chat about what it means for us. Turn with me, if you haven't already, to John six sixteen. 16. Uh, we missed a, a verse last week before our Bible reading that, that told us that the feeding of the 5,000 happened at the time of the Passover, and at the time of the Passover, Jesus questioned his disciples about how they were going to feed 5,000 men who were out in the desert with them. And he ends up taking a boy's play lunch and, and catering and, you know doing a catering miracle with it, providing for them all. And what logically is the next thing? What happens when you feed 20,000 people who are used to spending 85% of their income on food when you give them a free lunch? What happens? They want to make you king. You win their vote. And we find out in verse fifteen of chapter six. It says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. But Jesus doesn't need to be made king. Jesus already is the king. But he's just not the king that they neither want or expect. And so we enter in to our verse or our passage today. Verse sixteen When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. John wants us to know what time it is. It is evening. It is dark. It is late. Often throughout his book, he, he sets up Jesus doing things in the darkness. He sets up these times when disciples are, are away from Jesus. He's trying to show us that this is a, a time of uncertainty. This is a time of fear, and that becomes even more true because he tells us that they're going across the sea. Now, in our day today, I don't know if you, if, you know, when you, when you look out at a viewpoint across the sea at the vast expanse, there's just these, these depths, these miles and miles of, of who knows what. And every few years, don't we, we, we find out that there's this new discovery of some alien-like creature kilometres down at the bottom of the ocean. It reminds us that the, the ocean is, is scary. And in ancient minds... The sea represented chaos, that it couldn't be tamed. John tells us that at night, away from Jesus, these disciples had to venture across the chaos, across the sea. It's about eight kilometres from where they are now to Capernaum. And then it gets even worse. because Verse 18 says, The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. We know that the Sea of Galilee is prone to this. There's another story where a great storm arises and Jesus is asleep on the boat. The Sea of Galilee could get scary. Verse 19. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. And so John tells us where they are three or four miles. Remember, it was eight kilometers, end to end pretty much right in the middle, about five k's in to this eight-kilometer journey. They cannot get out and and walk in their fear uh, to the shore. They are stuck in the middle, in the darkness, in the chaos, without Jesus. And they're frightened. But John tells us that they're frightened because of the storm, but, but even more so, they're frightened more because of Jesus, of who they see walking on the water toward them. And the other gospel accounts, the other eyewitness testimony about this story tells us that they thought it was a ghost who was walking toward them. John doesn't tell us that, I think, because he wants us to focus in not on how they were feeling, but on who Jesus is. And then in verse 20, it says that Jesus said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. It is I, do not be afraid. And that is what John seems to emphasize in this story. Because Jesus could have been walking toward them, kind of waving and shouting the whole time to make sure they, would, they wouldn't kind of get it wrong, who he is. He doesn't want them thinking that a, he's a ghost. Guys, it's me. It's me. It's me. I'm coming. I'm coming. But instead he waits till he's, he's close enough and they're frightened enough for him to be right there saying, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now that's a very significant sentence. More significant than Jesus saying, "Hey, hey guys, Boys, it, it's me. No, John has written that. Jesus has said that because he wants us to remember a similarly significant sentence in the history of Israel. In the Greek, which is a language which the, the New Testament is written in, the phrase here, it, it is I, is written ego, ami". Ego, from where we get the word ego, meaning identity or, or personality, ego in Greek means I, Amy, you guessed it, means am. I am. And the reason that is significant is that in the memory, in the consciousness of the Jewish people, ego, Amy, takes one back to God's calling of Moses. If you're familiar with the Bible story, you might know that, that God raises up Moses to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, because they're enslaved in Egypt. And they're under the the kind of hard taskmaster leadership of Pharaoh who continues to have kind of unrealistic expectations for them, awful conditions of slavery there in Egypt. And in order to call Moses to take on this commission as leading his people out of Egypt, God appears to him in a burning bush. And as they have a, a conversation, Moses asks God how he should introduce God to the people. It says this, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So God is the I am. God is who he is. He's, he's without beginning. He's without end. He's not contingent. He's not dependent on anything else. God simply is who he is. And so notice the significance here in this story in John. It's a phrase that that normal people used all the time. And yet John is setting up all these circumstances to point out to us what Jesus means by it for himself. He's walking on water. Something that that only God can do. It's referred to in Job chapter 9. The sea and the the darkness are highlighting the chaos of the natural world. Something that God himself rules over in Psalm 89. He's walking toward his 12 disciples. Just like Moses who, who led the 12 tribes of Israel out of Egypt. And Jesus is saying here the most astonishing thing that anybody could ever say. He's not telling the disciples, hey guys, it's all right. I know God. He's not telling the disciples, guys... I can take you to God. Don't be scared. No, he's saying, it is I. I am God. He is saying that he is God. He's saying to them that he has always been, that he always will be. And if we needed confirmation, we could look around the rest of the book of John because he often points out these phrases that Jesus used to tell us, I am. Last week, it was, I am the bread of life. Next week, we're going to see, I am the light of the world. And Jesus here in this moment is telling us that he is God, that he rules over the sea. And so our story uh, wraps up in verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And so their fear turns to gladness. Jesus is welcomed in, and it appears even a second miracle happens, because... That that extra three or four kilometers, it goes by and they're already at the land. And so there's some some clear connections here that, that John wants to point out to us. And my job is to tell us, what does the sign point to? And so what does Jesus walking on the water tell us about him? It tells us that Jesus is the same God of the Exodus. Jesus is the same God of the Exodus. On the Passover, after having provided bread in the wilderness... Jesus met his fearful followers, 12 of them, by walking on water and telling them, it is I. I am. And so John's written this like this, to to make this this massive neon sign above Jesus' head. That when we look to Jesus, we might see not just a a first century Jewish man, but see in him and, and through him, this is the God of Abraham, This is the God of Isaac, Jacob, this is the God of Moses, this is the God of the Exodus. So let's unpack that for a moment. What comes into your mind when you think about Jesus? For some of us, for our our culture today, maybe for for the 21st century Melburnian, we might uh, put Jesus in the category of Buddha. And so what comes into our mind is the the Buddha Jesus. He was a good teacher, he was a, a guru, had some wise things to say about life, but not any particularly extraordinary or special over and above other people throughout history who have said some wise things. Well C.S. Lewis again had an infamous retort to people who might say that he wrote this, I'm trying here to prevent anybody saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. Now that might be true. We might think, oh, it's Buddha Jesus. But perhaps closer to home here in the church amongst uh, the Christian world, we might be a bit more familiar with Jesus. And so we might probably know that, oh, he's a little bit higher than the, the, the Buddha level, but we can still have a minimized view of Jesus. And so when we think of Jesus, perhaps we think of the buddy Jesus. We think Jesus is great. We love Jesus. And he's especially great. And we especially love Jesus because we have in our minds a Jesus who looks just like us. I oh, know I have the tendency to make my favourite Bible verses those Bible verses that I agree with already. Those Bible verses that mm, they really speak to me, as if the rest of the Bible isn't meant to speak to me. The ones that I get the goosebumps from, the ones that I already resonate with, those Bible verses that trigger the people that I already disagree with, they're my favourites. And so I have a tendency to, to, to shape Jesus. He's just one of the boys, just, one, just, just a buddy, just like me. Perhaps you stumbled across the, uh, the Christian satirical website, the Babylon Bee, uh, but a few years ago, uh, they kind of, in a funny way, pointed this out. Uh, this article summed it up. Jesus was a socialist, deconstructionist, feminist, claimed socialist, deconstructionist, feminist scholar. <laughs> Don't we? we will paint Jesus in our own image. We might laugh at that, but aren't we in danger of making Jesus an upwardly mobile, middle-class, eastern suburban Melbourneian, Just like us now of course yes jesus was a great friend of sinners sinners like you and me but he's nobody. david platt says jesus is not customizable he has not left himself open to interpretation adaptation innovation or alteration he has revealed himself clearly through his word and we have no right to personalize him instead he revolutionizes us and so what we want to see through these signs is not the Buddha Jesus, the buddy Jesus. We want to see the biblical Jesus. And we find him here, John telling us, clear as day, this is God in the flesh. Jesus is the same God of the Exodus. And so that might be great in theory, but what does it actually mean for you and me? i have got three particular applications for us. That what it means that John is trying to tell us who this Jesus is. Number one, Jesus is the God of salvation. Who can deliver us from our distress? See, the story of the Exodus is perhaps the key salvation story in the Old Testament. God's people are in chains, they're away from their promised land, they haven't yet seen the fruition of what they know to be their God's vision for them. They've got these unachievable demands placed upon them by this cruel Pharaoh. And God raises up Moses Let my people go. And you won't remember, if you've seen the movie or heard the story, that after he does let them go, there's that significant moment that probably involves uh, a very similar level of distress here to our sign today. God's people are are fearful and God's people have to cross water and they're stuck. In the Exodus, they're standing before the Red Sea. Pharaoh's changed his mind. He and his chariots are, are heading at pace toward God's people who have nowhere to go wedged before the sea, and the Egyptians are out for blood. And you probably know how it ends. God miraculously parts the Red Sea. His people are able to walk safely across before that Red Sea comes back down upon the Egyptians. It's an incredible story of salvation and rescue from slavery and from distress. Now this story we're looking at today is meant to remind us of that story. Because here in the midst of fear and distress, Jesus is here walking upon the water, delivering his people. And so if that God of the Exodus is this Jesus walking on the water, then you and I are in an incredible place. You and I are in an incredible place. Because our world can be just as chaotic, can be just as dark, just as scary. That distress is a normal emotion for people like you and me, with all that our world demands of us and the brokenness that we experience. Yet, even more than that, the main problem that God diagnoses for us and which we should be most distressed about is our separation from Him. That you and I are born in sin. The cute kids that we dedicated this morning, born in sin. We know that, some parents. By nature, all of humanity, we are separated from him. The laws of nature, spiritually, are that we are estranged from the God who made us, hostile toward him. And therefore, even if we don't know it, we're in distress, spiritually, under his wrath. And yet, praise God, Jesus knows our nature, and Jesus comes to us, walks to us. And it's in his nature to invite us to himself. And so just like in the Exodus, God delivers the Israelites, just like this miracle God, uh, Jesus delivers the disciples, the good news is that God is into deliverance of weary, broken, estranged people. That that same God has come to us in the flesh and he's come to us to win us back to himself. He's come to us for us, for our salvation. And so in Jesus, we can have our distress turned into gladness. We can be reconciled with the God that we're out of relationship with. In the other eyewitness accounts of this story, uh, Matthew and Mark, they they home in on Peter. In his excitement of seeing Jesus, jumps out of the boat. And he wants to walk toward Jesus. And and indeed, he, he starts walking toward Jesus. Then he stops looking at Jesus, and he starts flailing and and sinking. And Jesus is there to rescue him. It shows us something. That like Peter, when we take our eyes off Jesus and onto our fears, onto our distress, onto our failure, onto our circumstances, we start to sink. But the key is the faith that Jesus points out that Peter was lacking. And that faith looks like looking to Jesus, Looking to Jesus delivers us. If we simply have faith in Jesus, that is, if we simply trust in Jesus, we can receive the free gift of of salvation, of deliverance, and find salvation in him. And so Jesus can deliver us from our distress because he is the God of the Exodus. Number two, Jesus is the God of faithfulness who will lead us to the end. In the story, I pointed out there that that seemingly second miracle, the disciples immediately find themselves across the lake. Now, there's always connections going on when we read the Old Testament to the New. To the to the when we read the New Testament to the Old, allusions. John here wants us to remember that this is the God that, that Psalm 107 talks about. What he does for his people. It says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, he delivered them from their distress, he made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. Jesus is fulfilling this, this picture of what God does for his people. And it's a it's a bit of a, a prototype for our journey of faith with him: that God finishes what he starts. He did it in the Exodus. Not only did they get through to the other side of the Red Sea, they got through the next 40 years wandering in the wilderness until they made it to the promised land. Their their complaints, their disobedience, it didn't override God's faithfulness to do what he said he would do. And we saw before the, the, the giveaway of my sermon. Paul tells us in Philippians, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. And so in a similar way for us personally, God's going to do in us what he's done for them. Now some of you here have been Christians long enough to be out of the honeymoon stage. And so you've entered into the, this real life, the real world with Jesus. And you might be prone to doubt the presence of God with you in the, in the humdrum, daily, mundane realities of life. Maybe you've lost that, that fervor that you had when the journey first began. Well, this is the beauty of faith. But because it's, it's about simply looking to Jesus. Faith tells us that you didn't earn it, and so therefore you you can't unearn it. I know time is such that when you're kind of waiting for something, it feels like forever. And when you've just been through something, it feels like it went just like that. The parents today are going to experience that with their children. and So one day, just like these disciples who rocked up at the shore immediately, we're told, we are going to rock up at the shores of eternity with Jesus, I'm going to look back on our lives and think, man, that went so quickly. And what you'll say in that moment won't be, phew, I'm so glad I made it. You'll say, praise God. Thank you, Jesus, that you brought me the, this far. Thank you, Jesus, that you made it for me. Jesus always brings his people through. And so an encouragement for us who are in the, in the thick, we're, we're, we're halfway through the journey, we're, in the, we're, in the, we're three or four miles in, to the eight-kilometer journey. An encouragement to us is to keep looking to Jesus. He will be faithful. He will lead us through. Our relationship with God need not be shaky and thrown about. We look to Jesus. Third and finally, Jesus is the God who can be known and is worth our seeking. We haven't yet touched on our whole Bible reading Yet this morning, because as they hit the other side of the lake and they hop off the boat, they see that a, a, a crowd is, is following them. And John tells us what's happened here. He tells us that the, that the crowd went down to where they left the day before and found out hey, all the, boat, the, the boats are here. Uh, sorry, they're, they're missing. They must have gone to the other side. We're, we're going to chase them. John tells us in, in verse 24 when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When I was 14, I got my very first job, uh, and my very first job was at Brumby's Bakery. I don't know if Brumby's still exists. Bakers' Delight stocks have kind of gone up, and Brumby's, ever since I joined them, went downhill. Uh, but one of the fringe benefits of working at a bakery, particularly at the end of the day, which is when I would be there to, to clean up the store, uh, is that you get to decide what happens to all the leftovers. And so in this particular bakery, as I think it happens, uh, you know, all the, all the savoury leftovers are, are, are binned up and, and given to charity. But you can't give, or at least we couldn't at the time, give the, the sugary ones, all the ones that a teenage boy wants to keep for himself. The Boston buns, the finger buns, the coffee scrolls, they had something had to happen to them. They were either going to go into the bin, or they were going to go into my tummy. <laughs> and so what we would do is divide up those leftovers at the end of the day, and so I would then have a bag or two full of, of muffins and coffee scrolls and all that, and I would take that to school the next day. And what happens when you take two bags of Brumby's Bakery leftovers to school is, is people want to make you king. <laughs> Just like Jesus. My classmates, these, these pubescent teenagers flocking to me for a double choc muffin. Well, this is exactly what the people are doing here. And the rest of John chapter 6, if you read it in your own time, you'll see that Jesus spends that whole chapter rebuking them for seeking him. Ordinarily, we might think, hey, people, this crowd seeking Jesus, how good. Praise God, revival is breaking out here. And yet Jesus is rebuking them for seeking him. Because they're not seeking him. They're seeking what they can get from him. They didn't want Buddha Jesus or Buddy Jesus. They wanted Butler Jesus. Get me what I want. I want bread. that the God of the Exodus has stepped onto the stage of human history, it tells us that the God wants us to know him, trust him, be reconciled with him, that he has, he has come so that we might be, be re-essentially uh, reconciled with uh, God himself, not come to dish us out the things that were distracting us anyway. And so think about what God has done for us. In the Exodus, God rescued them. He provided for them food and water fresh uh, every morning. He saved them from their enemies. He gave them his law as a means of keeping them close to him. He pointed them forward in a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. He dwelt with them, making his glory manifest in the, in the tabernacle there. He took them to the edge of the promised land without their shoes wearing out, we're told. He was faithful to his promises until the end. And yet in the story of the Exodus. His people still forgot Him. God took them right into the land, flowing with milk and honey. And they forgot about Him and focused on the milk and the honey. And we can do exactly the same as them. That God has been so good to you, to us. He's created us, He's pursued us, He's sent His Son into the world to live, die and rise again for us. He's provided for us, He's, he's welcomed us back. He's forgiven us again and again. He's offered grace for every future failure that you're going to make today, this afternoon, next week, in the years and the decades to come. He promises that none can snatch us out of his hand. He promises that he's going to get us to the end, to glory, where we're going to dwell with him forever and ever, free from pain and problems. And after all of that, so often we're like this crowd, we hear all of that good news. And they say, yeah, Jesus, that's great. What about the bread? Can you ha- give me the bread? And it gets to the point at the end of John chapter 6 where Jesus is teaching these hard things and the crowds have stopped seeking him. In fact, they've turned around and walked in the other way. And even it tells us some of his disciples left him. And Jesus turns to those that remain and says, are you going to go away as well? And Peter responds in a powerful way. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And so there are two seekers here. Those who are seeking Jesus to get things from him and there are those who seek Jesus for who he is. And so the final application of this story challenges us. It it, it compels us to ask ourselves that question how are we seeking Jesus or which kind of Jesus are we seeking? I say, so may we be a people who seek Jesus for Jesus' sake, who seek Jesus because we see in him how beautiful, how wonderful, how marvelous, how powerful this Jesus is, that we see in Jesus that this is the God of the exit. This is the God who is there, who has come down in flesh And who am I that God would be mindful of me? That he would come to win me back to relationship with him. And so Jesus is worthy of giving all of our attention, all of our energy, all of our seeking to him and to him alone. And so we're going to worship Jesus for that, that reality right now. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you so much that Jesus has come, the Word made flesh, and that you've left us here, this Word, that points to you, that uh, reveals to us so clearly what you've done for us and who you are for us in Jesus. Lord, keep us and forgive us for when we have been seeking Jesus for other things. Protect us from taking our eyes off of Jesus and onto the things that we might want to use him to add to our lives Lord we thank you that this story shows us so loudly and clearly your power that you could walk upon the waters that nature itself bends to your word and to your will and we thank you that this shows us so loudly and clearly your identity that Jesus is the God who is there the God who was and is and evermore will be Jesus, we want to worship you for who you are, not who, you, who we think you might be for us. We want to know you truly, genuinely, and we want to submit ourselves to who you are and to the vision that you have for our lives. So Lord, we thank you so much for your, your grace, for your offer, for your invitation to come and be reconciled to you. Lord, would you give us the Holy Spirit that we might say yes to that, that invitation? And so for everybody here who's uh, perhaps just poked their head in this morning, just just here to visit, maybe even here for other reasons, for good reasons. Lord, we pray that you might move powerfully amongst us and you might compel each of our hearts to see you for who you really are. And may our hearts take the the, the natural next step toward you. Repenting of the ways that we've lived apart from you and putting our trust in you to live with you from now on. Lord, I pray for the people who need to take that step for the first time today. Would you be moving in them? I pray for people like me who need to take that step for the hundredth time today. Lord, do we return to fixing our eyes upon Jesus and walking with you? I thank you that you're a God who's going to deliver us, a God who will get us to the end, and a God who invites us to seek you, Lord. May we press in and pursue you this morning. It's in Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen.